Well, as I returned to this rather dark part of the narrative of the life of David this week, I, I thought to myself, you know, uh, if you're one of those people who really likes a story that has a lot of passion and intrigue and conspiracy and, and betrayal and heartache and heartbreak and deep and powerful emotion and drama, then you've probably been loving the last four or five weeks in this series because it's been rough. It's been rough. I mean, in the last four or five weeks alone, we've watched not only the fall of David, and incidentally, that was a precipitous fall. It was a devastating fall, and not just for David, but for me. It's been tough to watch as this guy who I just esteemed so highly has become a guy that I know he has the same DNA, I know that he has the same name, I know he looks basically the same, I know he still has the title of king, I, I get all that. I mean, he is the same guy, but he's, he's not the same guy, just not. And we've gotten to watch not just all of the darkness of the fall of David, but then of the fall of David's household, a fall that, as we've also seen, is patterned after the fall of David. And incidentally, don't you think David noticed that? And did that not make it all the more painful for him? We've witnessed it. So then as David lusted after Bathsheba, another man's wife, Amnon, the crown prince of Israel, the would-be next king lusted after his half-sister, Tamar, and then just as David forcibly took that other man's wife, Bathsheba, sexually, Amnon forcibly took Tamar, except what David did privately, Amnon did publicly and with complete contempt and disdain for his father. No fear of judgment, and he was right, he didn't get any judgment. David did not a thing about it. And so then just as David realized, uh-oh, Bathsheba's pregnant... And had his servant Joab, the commander of his army, put her husband Uriah to death out in the battlefront, somewhere outside of Jerusalem, so that he could quickly take her into his harem and cover over his sin, Absalom, the full-blooded brother of Tamar, who witnesses what Amnon has done to his sister and who further came to the realization that, you know what, my dad is not going to do anything about this, took matters into his own hands. And he hosted a feast outside of town, had all of the king's sons come, including Amnon, and when he gave the order, his servants executed Amnon. His brother, the crown prince of Israel, the oldest son of David. And here again, what David did privately, Absalom, complete contempt, complete disdain. He does it publicly. Unbelievable. And then last week, we got together and we saw how Absalom, the new crown prince, incidentally, the second in line for the throne now became the first in line when he killed number one. All right, Absalom, whose name ironically means father of peace. Now, we saw that he hasn't brought much peace to his dad, has he? Absalom, last week, while we watched conspired together with David's right-hand man. So feel the pain and betrayal of that as David felt it when he came to realize it. The most brilliant strategist in Israel sided secretly with Absalom. And together, this man named Ahithophel, Bathsheba's grandfather, put together this brilliant, amazing, you've got to be kidding me, awesome plan, and then executed it together with Absalom perfectly. And here's how the plan ended. It ended last week with David, the king of Israel, and about 600 or so people who were loyal to him there, 
literally fleeing for his life upon hearing that his son Absalom has proclaimed himself to be king, that all the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom and not with him. It ended with David walking down from the city of David into the Kidron Valley, walking across that little brook, walking up the Mount of Olives. And as he went, he went barefoot, a sign of poverty and humility, with his head covered, a sign of mourning and weeping. So if you like stories that are full of passion and intrigue and betrayal and conspiracy and heartache and heartbreak and all of that, this stuff is for you. But if you're like me and it makes you break out in a rash, you know, it's, it's been about five weeks of bathing in calamine lotion and crying out to the Lord, where is the hope in all of this? Where is the light in all of this? Where is the life in all of this? Let me ask it differently. Better stated, where is Christ in all of this? Because here's the thing. Since the beginning of this year, here's what I've been saying. These are not just stories about King Saul and King David and the nation state of Israel who lived, you know, way, way, way back then. It's about those people and we can learn a few things. No. These are actively stories about King Jesus and me and King Jesus and you. And so where is Jesus in this story that we're going to look at today? Because I want to tell you, Jesus is in this story, and it is not unclear. The picture of Christ in this story will not be difficult for you to see. He's here. But David didn't see it. That didn't occur to me until about a minute before I got up to speak in the first service. David didn't see it. The cross of Jesus Christ is in the midst of the darkness of David. It's in his most despairing moment. It is standing there. It is visible. It is absolutely clear. But unlike us, because, well, we have the full narrative of his life, but then we have the full narrative of the life of Jesus as well. You know what? He didn't have that. David, in the moment, did not see it. But about a thousand years later, he did. And I kind of wonder, you know, if the Lord, as God the Father, endured his darkest moment in which the cross was dead center in the middle, didn't call David into the secret chamber just to see the look on his face when he realized that when he felt like God was farthest from him, God was closest. When he felt like it was darkest, it was actually brightest. When he felt most despairing, and this is it today, that was the moment of greatest hope. It's true for David, it's true for me, and it's true for you, and yet I think the Lord oftentimes allows us to endure our darkness without seeing it. Why? Because we're not called to live by sight in this world, but by faith that when he says that his cross is in the middle of it, there it is. And there are a lot of aha moments coming for us today. So we will see Jesus in this story today, and in Jesus we'll find that we have a king whose cross is in the middle of our darkest hours and who brings us peace with his Father when we bring to him our sin-filled and tragedy-filled lives. So we pick up our study today in 2 Samuel 16, we're beginning in verse 15, where we read this. It says, now Absalom and all of the people who sided with Absalom in his great rebellion against David and who are now described, and listen to this description, it's a big deal, as simply the men of Israel. 
Now, does that mean 100% of the men of Israel? No, we'll see that some eventually, at least, side with David. But the idea is that the overwhelming amount of the men of Israel, yeah, man, look, all the momentum is with Absalom at this point. And here he comes, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel, that turncoat, that Benedict Arnold, that Judas Iscariot, that traitor of David, That sellout, that oh-so-brilliant man came with him right at his side. And then we read also that when Hushai the archite, who as we now see is also David's friend, but if you were with us last week, you know is now pretending to be Absalom's friend. So when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, he says, long live the king, long live the king. And here's what I want you to see. He's counting that Absalom will mishear that. And here's why he is so confident, because Absalom is so prideful. Absalom is so arrogant. Absalom is so egocentric. The whole world revolves around him. That's who he is. That's what he is. This utterly rebellious, utterly wicked man Hushai comes into his presence and says, long live the king, long live the king. And he's counting on the fact that Absalom in his pride will immediately assume that Hushai is obviously talking about him. I mean, who else could it possibly be except for David? And that's what he actually means. He doesn't mean long live Absalom. He means long live David. But pride is a blinding thing. It is a misleading thing, and not just for Absalom, for everyone. So Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, and Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And so Absalom, assuming that he meant himself, said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Well, if you were with us last week, that's what he initially intended to do. He met David on the barefoot, tear-soaked road and said, hey, I'm coming with you. And David said, no, 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 no. Here's how you can be a friend to me. Go back into the city, wait for Absalom to arrive, and then pretend to be his friend instead of mine, and listen for the advice of Ahithophel. And if Ahithophel says, A, you say Z. And if Ahithophel says Z, you say A. Whatever he says, argue as best you can the opposite of it because his counsel is something I'm incredibly fearful of. He's brilliant. He's wicked, but he's brilliant. So long live the king. And Absalom says, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, now listen to what he says. It's so careful. He says, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen. Wait, stop, hang on, who's that? Because it isn't Absalom. Has the Lord anointed Absalom to be the king of Israel? No, the Lord anointed David. David is the Lord's anointed. Did the people of Israel choose Absalom to be their king? No, they were deceived in deciding with him. But way back in the day, the people of Israel came to David who did not deceive them, neither did he solicit their help. And they said, would you espouse yourself to us? Would you take us as your bride? He's the chosen one. That's who Hushai is talking about here. But he's counting on Absalom's pride, and he's safe in doing so. It makes him blind. So Hushai says to Absalom, "'Know for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, i.e. your dad, his will I be, and with him I will remain.'" 
And then he asks a couple of questions, which sound like rhetorical questions, but they're not. He says, and again, whom should I serve? Indeed. Well, he figured that out before Absalom even arrived. Should it not be his son? He's answered that. Nope. No, it should not. And so then he says, as I have served your father, that is to say, in a way that is best promoting of your father's interests, that's how he served him, so I will serve you. I will serve you in a way that is faithful to your dad is what he's saying, but that's not what Absalom is hearing, and that plays right into Hushai's hands. And so then apparently being satisfied with that, Absalom said to Ahithophel, Oh, brilliant one, give your counsel. What shall we do next? Because the plan that at least I think he put together initially for the whole conspiracy, it's going perfectly. I mean, this is amazing. So what's next? And Ahithophel says to Absalom, and his counsel is brilliant and it is utterly wicked. He says, go in to your father's concubines, meaning go sleep with your father's wives. And here's the deal. When David left town last week, he left some of his harem behind. It's a statement of David's deficiencies, frankly. He still isn't getting his son. Not even yet has he perceived the depths of the wickedness of Absalom. It's unbelievable. And he doesn't anticipate this. So Ahithophel says, all right, I'll give you some counsel. You need to sleep with your father's wives, whom he has left to keep the house when he fled, and then here's what will happen. All of Israel will hear that you've done this, and that by doing this incestuous and horrific thing, that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and then here's the practical result. It's like math. Then what necessarily will happen next is that the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Now, why is that? Because you've got guys who are with Absalom, and you've got a much smaller group, much, much smaller group who are with David, and then you have all the undecideds. And all the undecideds are going to remain undecided unless they're forced to choose. So they're kind of kicking back and they're going, look, you know, I get all the momentum is with Absalom, and if I'm going to look at this self-interested, then he's the horse to bet on. So pure self-interest, I would have to go with Absalom if you force me to choose, but I'm not going to choose because what if I go with Absalom and then Absalom and David make up? Not so good for me. I'd rather remain in the good graces of the king. So they're all sitting back and they're not going to choose unless they're forced to choose. And that's what Ahithophel's plan forces them to do. Because when they hear that Absalom has incestuously taken the wives of David, they will think at least that there will be no repair to this relationship. There will not possibly ever be a reconciliation between these two men. And suddenly now, all of a sudden, they've got to make a choice. Are we with Absalom or are we with David? And by the way, all the momentum is with Absalom. He's the racehorse to bet on. Only by principle would you go with David. So most of the folks, based on human nature, will side with Absalom and strengthen his cause. You see how devious this is? It's amazing. So here's what they did. It's horrifying. And it's highly ironic. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof of what? Of David's palace, the very roof where David stood and saw Bathsheba bathing, lusted after her, said, who is that woman? And knowingly sent and took her. Now what will happen? Another man will sleep with his wives. His own son, for crying out loud, 
from the same vantage point. And here again, while David did that privately, how does Absalom do it? In the sight of all Israel. Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, and now we read that in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God, and so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Why is that little thing in there? To tell you that everything that happens next, okay, is the work of God. God will undo the counsel of Ahithophel. Only God can undo it. He's dead center in the middle of this story, guys. He's all over it. It's unbelievable. And so now Ahithophel gives Absalom his military advice, and it's just as brilliant, and it's just as wicked, and it's just as matter of fact. Again, it's mathematical. You need to do this and this and this and this and this, and since you're not a math major, Absalom, let me add that all up for you. That adds up to this, and this is what you want. Great, awesome plan. It's exactly what Absalom should do. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, which is a force, by the way, far greater than the 600 or so that initially left town with David. Same day. And it probably represents 1,000 from all of the 12 tribes. So let me put together a coalition force in which all Israel will reject your father as king and proclaim you as the king. He says, let me choose 12,000 men, and I, not you, Absalom, will arise, and I will pursue David tonight, not tomorrow, not the next day, not the day following, not a week from now, not three weeks from now. We need to do this immediately, and I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all of the people who are with him will see that they're massively outnumbered, that the king is panicking, that they're panicking, that we've pounced upon them, that they're sitting ducks, and they will all flee, and I will strike down only the king. He's the only one that matters. And here's why. Because this is a war between two men. That's it. What Ahithophel knows is that if David dies, everyone on David's side will immediately coalesce around the new king. It was Absalom. He's the crown prince of Israel. There's no other rival. There's no third option. Just like if Absalom dies, everyone will coalesce around David. All the men of Israel will again receive him as their king. They don't have a choice, you see. That's why he says, you stay here, and I, Ahithophel, will lead this. We can't risk you. If you die, we're done. There's nothing left. So either David or Absalom will die, and what will their death bring? Peace to God's people. So let me choose 12,000 men And I, not you, will arise and pursue David tonight, and I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, which is exactly what David said last week that he feared, and I'll throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike down only the king, and then I will bring back all of the people who've sided with him, you see, to you as a bride comes home to her husband. They'll have no other choice. For Absalom, you seek the life of only one man. And upon his death, all the people will be at peace. And the advice of Ahithophel, which is exactly what Absalom should have done, seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel, however, in the providence of God who will now overturn it. Then Absalom in his foolishness, 
his pride, you see. He's not humble enough to know who the real strategist is and simply to go, yeah, man, let's do what he says, because every time we do what he says, it works. Oh, now he's on the throne. His ego is inflating. He's going to be the decision maker. He's going to be the leader. He's going to hear from a multitude of counselors. He's blind and foolish. And that works to the Lord's advantage in this case. And so then Absalom said, call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ahithophel's like, what? <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I just gave you the plan. I did the math for you. Are you out of your mind? Yes, as a matter of fact. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken, and he gives to Hushai Ahithophel's entire plan. Here's the plan. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. And then Hushai, no doubt with his heart racing, enjoys his finest moment ever. Has to be. Like, as he looked back on his life as an old man, he must have said, listen, if there was ever a time when the hand of the Lord was upon me, it was right here. He very bravely and I think at the risk of his own life, says this time the, the counsel that Ahithophel has not or has given is not good. And you just have to feel how that must have fell in that room. That is a thud. There are gasps now. There's murmurings. There's doubts about him. Is he, is he out of his mind? Like, he just heard the brilliant plan. Everybody agrees. This is the, you know, do you think maybe he's a spy? I mean, do you think... No, it's not good. And then Hushai said, and notice the language that he uses because it's not mathematical. It's full of images. Images are what move us, not logic. Think about that. He captures his passions. He incites fear and pride, and he persuades him. It's amazing, brilliant. He says to Absalom, you know that your father and his mighty men, unlike you, Absalom, you are a pampered prince. You've not been to war. You've never beaten or defeated anybody or anything. You've taken everything by deception, and you can't take him by deception now. Now it's time to fight and take up arms. Let me tell you something about your father that is very much opposite of you. You know that your father and his men are mighty men. They are not amateurs. These men are legendary. And he's recalling, you see, all of the legendary battles of David. And they are, in fact, legendary even to us now. He says, you know that your father and his men are mighty men. More than that, that they are enraged right now by what you've done. They are like a bear, he says, very intentionally. Robbed of her cubs in the field. Why do I say it that way? I mean, that's a powerful enough image on its own, but wait a minute, as you replay the legendary moments in the life of David, his valor, his prowess in battle, where do you find a bear? You find it in the story of David and Goliath when he's just a boy, a shepherd boy. He shows up, you'll recall, and everyone in the army of Israel, including the king himself, no one will fight this man, Goliath. David says, you know, I'm here. I got some time. I'll take him down for you. Not a problem, you know. And King Saul calls him into his tent and says, what? You? You've got to be kidding me. You look, you look at you and look at him. What does David say? He uses two animals. When I was a shepherd, see, I'm just a shepherd, but... When the bear came to devour my sheep, 
I killed him. What's the other animal? The lion. Keep your eye out for that. He'll use that in a second. And when the lion came, I grabbed him by his beard. Do you remember? I tore him up with my bare hands, David, when he was just a boy. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them. And then, in fact, he was. Hushai is recalling David's valor with his images. They're enraged. They're like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And besides, and now here comes a practical argument, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. And if he doesn't, your whole plan, Ahithophel's plan, fails. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And so then as soon as some of the people in your army fall in battle to David, who's mighty, and to his mighty men, who are like unbelievably valorous, it's going to happen. You're going to lose people in this attack that Ahithophel is counseling. And as soon as some of them fall in this first attack... Not only will you fail to kill your father because he'll be hidden away, he's too smart for this, he will have thought through this carefully, he won't even be there, but everyone in Israel, all the undecideds to hear about this, will say there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even then, even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion, there it is, will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father unlike you, is a mighty man, and that those men who are with him are valiant men. These guys, well, they're legendary. They're unbelievable. Who do you think you're dealing with that you could do something like this, he's saying? And so then my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, from the far north to the far south. And then he gives them the image of this massive army, as the sand by the sea for multitude. The idea being, look, 12,000 is not enough to take your dad. It's just a stupid plan that Ahithophel has. You need to gather up everyone that you possibly can. You're going to need them all, and they're all mostly on your side at this point, so you should be able to do this. But what is he really buying for David? He's buying time. He needs time. Time for David to make an escape immediately, and time for David to have some men gather to him as well. That's what he's looking for. And then he goes all in on Absalom's pride. He envisions this massive army for him, and then he places Absalom at the front of it. He says, and that you, Absalom, go into battle in person. Now, again, abject foolishness because that places Absalom in the battle, and if Absalom dies, it's over. It's a war between two guys. Everybody coalesces around David again, everyone. But it's utterly brilliant. It appeals to his pride. Here's what Absalom is not. He's not a mighty warrior. He's never been envisioned as one, and this is his big chance. And I mean with an army behind him, like that's like the, you know, sand by the seashore, for crying out loud. How can he possibly lose? Here is his opportunity to establish himself as a greater even than David by defeating David. And so then together with this great army of you, Hushai says at the head, and it's just brilliant, he says, we shall come upon David in some place where he actually is to be found, And we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all of his men, not one will be left. And if he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city. And we shall drag it into the valley until not one pebble even is to be found there. And then Absalom filled with all of these visions of grandeur. 
And all of the men of Israel as well, moved by these great images. Well, they said, well, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better even than the counsel of Ahithophel. And then the narrator tells us why they said that. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, and here's why the Lord ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Are you ready? So that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So is God's intention here toward Absalom unclear to you at this point, or do you think you got it? It's not ambiguous, is it? You don't read that and go, I don't know what that means. Do you you think he has it in for him? I mean, yes, actually, I do. God is determined to bring judgment upon the son of David. Devastating, death-producing judgment upon the son of David. And the death of the son of David, who is Absalom in this story, will be the very thing that brings peace between God's people and the father of the son of David. And if you know the story of Jesus, guys, that should sound kind of familiar. And so then Absalom rejects the brilliant counsel of Ahithophel, who, like Judas Iscariot, runs off and hangs himself. Intrigue, passion. And Absalom musters his army, and David musters his much much smaller army. And then in chapter 18, beginning in verse 5, we read that in just as David's army is heading out of the gate of the city that David is stationed in to go out to fight with the army of Absalom, the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Etai, the, the three commanders of his army, and here are his orders. Deal gently for my sake, he says, with the young man Absalom. What is he saying? Please don't kill my son Absalom. That's just not realistic, is it? If the nation is going to be reconciled to their king, the son of the father must die. And the father himself, by means of, well, in this case, these soldiers must do it. But you feel the heart of the father. You sense the price that the father must necessarily, inescapably, inevitably pay to have peace with his people. So he says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom, and they all roll their eyes. Or at least Joab does, and understandably. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom, and the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel, meaning the men who were with Absalom, were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss of life there was great on that day. 20,000 men, I think it means of Israel, Absalom's troops primarily, died, and the battle spread over the face of the country. And now notice this, it says that the forest devoured, and the word means literally ate. The forest ate. It devoured more people that day than the sword. And I tried to make sense of that this week, and I still can't. I mean, how does that work exactly? 
And there are theories like, you know, one of the theories was, well, the men of David knew the forest better than the men of Absalom, and so then somehow the forest helped sort of neutralize the differentiation between, you know, how many Absalom soldiers there were and how many soldiers David had, and so maybe that's the way it went. Some guy said, well, I, I think that maybe they got stuck in a bog, you know, and I'm thinking, where is that in this passage? I mean, that's just bizarre to me. Just read it plainly for a minute. Listen, God is involved in this battle, is He not? He's already declared the winner. I will bring harm upon Absalom. By his death, there will be peace. It almost sounds like the trees are animated. Do you ever watch or read like the Lord of the Rings? In all seriousness, I don't know this, but when I read that this week, I thought this is where it came from. Tolkien is a believer. It's as if the trees themselves came to life and destroyed more of the soldiers of Absalom than even the sword of the soldiers of David. I will tell you that Absalom too was devoured by the forest, for we then read that Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. And now watch this, Absalom, and what do we know about Absalom from previous stories? We know that he was flawless in appearance. It specifically says of him that from his head to his toe there was not a blemish. He is the flawless son of David. What else do we know about him? That he would grow his hair long every year and that he would shave it off once a year. What is his hair the picture of? It is the picture of his vanity. It is the picture of his pride. Good grief, can you imagine the vanity of a guy who would cut his hair once a year and then publicly weigh it? Think about that. Like, what has to possess you to think that anybody would care how much your hair weighed? How, like, in love do you have to be with you? How much must you think about yourself to think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut my hair off, and then I'm just going to announce it, and I'm going to know that I just know everybody's going to show up to see how much it weighs. Yeah, no, you know, I I just think I'm going to be sitting on the couch for that one, bud. Just, I'm not even curious I'm curious about how much Carter's hair weighs, (laughs) but not Absalom's. Well, apparently this was shortly before his haircut, his annual shaving, because we read that Absalom was riding on his mule, which incidentally is the beast of royalty for the kings of Israel. It's what Jesus, parenthetically, rides in a path that goes the reverse of the barefoot road that David took out of town. On Palm Sunday, the Lord crested the Mount of Olives, and on that donkey's colt, you remember? He rode up into Jerusalem shortly before his crucifixion to the hosannas of David's, or of of God's people. So anyway, Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule... (laughs) Well, the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. He's seeking to escape David's soldiers, and Absalom's head, we read, or really, it's Absalom's hair caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him had enough good sense to just keep going. So now what do we have if you just stop and think about it? We have the flawless son of David hanging on a tree suspended between heaven and earth. It's very appropriate for him at this point in the narrative because it's clear that he's been rejected by both. His armies have been defeated. He will have no kingdom in this world. 
And he is an utterly wicked and faithless man who has no kingdom and no share in the kingdom of heaven either. Incidentally, to be hung on a tree according to the law of God, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, is to bear the curse of the Lord himself. So there he is. And a certain man saw this, saw him hanging there, and he went and he told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in a tree. And then we read in the last part of verse 14, And Joab immediately went to Absalom is the idea. And upon finding him, he then took three javelins. This soldier took spears in his hand, and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom. That is to say, he pierced the side of the flawless son of David, who was hanging in a tree, rejected by heaven and earth in that moment, and bearing the curse of the Lord. Yeah, he pierced him in the side. While he was still alive in the oak, and then ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him, and then Joab blew the trumpet. What trumpet? The trumpet of victory. The trumpet of the battle is over. The trumpet of the fight is won. The trumpet of the sun is dead. What is he announcing with the blaring of the trumpet? He's saying, it is finished. For the sun has died. And now notice what they do. They took Absalom, took him down from the tree, and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. They put him in a grave covered over by stones. And then all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Battle was over, and that was it. And then Joab sent word to David that Absalom was dead. And then we read in verse 33 that the king was deeply moved upon getting that news, and instead of then sitting in the gate of the city and waiting for his victorious, valorous men who have risked everything for him to come back from battle, having defeated a far greater foe than their numbers warranted for sure, thanking them and blessing them, David instead, in his grief, went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, "'Oh, my son Absalom,' My son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. But Absalom had to die, didn't he? It was inevitable. It was inescapable. There's no getting around it. The son of the father had to die, and frankly... The father or his emissaries, at the very least, had to put him to death for there to be peace between the people and the father. But my goodness, don't miss the price of that to the father, because David shows it to you. So there it is. I mean, if you like passion and intrigue and betrayal and conspiracy and heartache and heartbreak and all that good stuff, uh, then this is for you. But If you're like me, you know, it's just, wow. And you wonder, where is the hope in this? And where is the light in this? And where is the life in this? And where is Jesus? That's the better way of asking the same question in this. And the answer to that is obvious, I think. We see a very clear picture of Jesus in the person of Absalom, and we, on the one hand, see it. It's as plain as the sun in the sky. On the other hand... We kind of freak out when we see it, don't we? Because Absalom is a horrible person. 
Absalom is unutterly prideful, utterly arrogant, utterly egotistical, utterly rebellious, utterly wicked. Throw off the yoke of his father. I can't even wait for you to die, old man. I'm going to kill you because I can't stand to live under your rule. I'm so contemptuous of you that I seek your life. Guy! So how does that work? Well, think about it this way. As the true son of David the son of the true father, hung on the cross, whose sin did he bear? I'm going all in on mine. And if you believe in him, then I'm going all in on yours. And I'm sorry, but Absalom isn't just a picture of Jesus. He's a picture of me and of you too. We are all of us prideful and all of us arrogant and all of us egocentric. We all of us honestly want to sit on our own thrones, do we not? That's why we routinely walk into the throne rooms of our heart and kick God out. Hey, you know what? I don't think you want to be around for this. Go stand in the hall. Don't leave because you might become, you know, somebody I need at some point, but I got it. Thanks. We want him to serve us. We want everyone else to serve us. We are fundamentally depraved and selfish. Sorry, but it's true. What makes... Absalom, a perfect picture of Jesus, is the reality that on the cross, Jesus bore my sin and yours. Jesus is the flawless son of David, flawless not in his physique, but in something far more significant in his character. Which one do you work on more? flawless in his character, who to buy us peace with the Father willingly hung on a tree suspended between heaven and earth, and in that moment rejected by both, bearing the curse of God that we deserved for our sin and willingly offering his perfect life as a substitute for our Absalom-like lives, and who on that tree was pierced in the side by the spear of a soldier taken down off of the tree, put into a grave, a pit is what it was, a cave covered over by a stone, except unlike with Absalom, the grave could not hold him. And so then, as he said he would, he came forth that he might reign as king over both heaven and earth, each of which have been given to him, and offer forgiveness and eternal life to every single one of us who come to him and say, you know what, I actually am Absalom. And the way that I've lived has wrecked my relationship with my heavenly Father. And consider the price that your Father in heaven paid to solve that through the cross of Jesus Christ for you. Picture the heart of the true Father in the sufferings and in the death and in the burial of the true son, one that he was not estranged from, as was David and Absalom, one who in fact was perfect. For God so loved that he gave. I think this story gives us some insight on that. Who did he love? You. In Jesus, we have this king, guys, who willingly gives his life that we might have peace with our Father. Oh, and the story also says that in our darkest hour, the cross of that Christ 
even when we can't see it, and by design are oftentimes prevented from seeing it, that we might learn to live by faith and not by what we can see. It's there, which means, I think, that there are some aha moments coming in heaven someday for us as well. So think on those things as you come to his table today. We have the privilege this morning of celebrating the Lord's table. And if you think about what we have before us, you know, it's bread and it's, in our case, juice. Bread and wine, I'll call it. What are they? They are the emblems of the body of Jesus broken for you. They are the emblems of the blood of Christ shed for you and broken and shed where? Primarily on his cross, which is a tree of death to him and it's a tree of life to us. So then what are they? They're the fruit of the tree of life, really, symbolically. And they're here for everyone who has confessed, I'm Absalom, I need Jesus, and who have been forgiven of their sins and given themselves to him. So if you're a believer in Christ this morning, Christ not only invites you to the table, He actually commands you to come to the table, but not until first you take a seat back there and and you think through your sin. Think through pride and arrogance and ego or maybe whatever else it is that the Spirit perhaps put on your heart as, as we were talking or as we were worshiping this morning at any point. Some sin in your life that you need to confess has been sweeter to you than Him, that you've placed yourself on your own throne and you need to repent of that and let the true king return to his throne. And if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, then consider what he offers you. Give your sin to him. Feel the joy of his salvation. And the next time we come to the table, then come. All right, I'm going to pray and then read a passage of Scripture, and and we're going to come to the Lord's table today. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you uh, for Jesus. And um, for moments like this, we thank you for the darkness of David, for in it we see the light of your cross. And we know that even in our darkness, Lord, the light of your cross exists even if we are blinded from it. Help us to live by faith. Let us take these words and know and live accordingly that you're in every despairing thing. Lord, that it all ends well, that many aha moments await us. Impress those things upon us, Lord, and speak to us about our sin and our idolatry of the things that we worship and serve instead of and above you, including just we ourselves. Make us to deal with the things that we tend to typically deny, like our own selfishness, our own pride, and so forth. Show us by your Spirit our sin that we might repent of it now and be forgiven. Lord, and then come joyfully to your table, receiving the emblems of the tree of life that you yourself laid down your life to grant freely to all who come. Let us do these things to your glory and worship you well. As a result of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.